Man, and that's our prayer. Hopefully every time, not just on a Sunday morning when I have the opportunity to preach, but daily as you open up God's Word, that He would speak to us and that, that through the working of His Spirit, working through His Word, He would build up His church for His glory. That's our desire and, and our prayer this morning. And so uh, if you want uh, to get your Bible open to get ready, we're going to be reading from God's Word here in just a moment from Second Chronicles 34. It's a long chapter that we're going to be looking at today as we work our way through this summer series uh, getting through now to the end of Second Chronicles. We started in chapter 29, today in 34, and we'll wrap this up. Uh, We've got three more weeks left in Second Chronicles. And so, i uh, really been enjoying studying this. Like we, I mentioned in an email to the church this week, last week just really struggled. It was a hard passage to study, a hard passage to communicate. And this week, I got to just enjoy uh, just sometimes that's the way it is with God's Word, right? That there's times where it's just like, that's a struggle. I, I know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful in some way, but I'm having a hard time grasping how this is useful right now. And then sometimes God just makes it very clear, this is very useful uh, right now. And we know that it's always true, but sometimes it's just easier to see. And it's easier to see here in chapter 34. So I'm looking forward to going through this together this morning. Uh, some people... You, you know, uh, and maybe, maybe you know some of them, maybe you don't know uh, some, but it seems like some people in life are just set up well for success from the very beginning. They are given privileges and advantages that most people don't get. Just looking back in history, the sixth president of the United States was a man by the name of John Quincy Adams. His dad, John Adams, was the second president of the United States. Now, this kid really had everything set up to him. It's like he was groomed for this. He didn't attend school as a young boy because he was privately tutored by his, dad, by his cousin and his dad's law clerk. His dad worked as a diplomat to France and to the Netherlands, and he got to go with his dad on those trips. He became very fluent in Dutch and French. He got a job. I mean, like, what job did you get when you were 14? I got a job doing uh, corn detasseling when I was 14. When he was 14, he began working as a secretary to a diplomat to Russia. Um, And uh, so, I mean, he just, he went to Harvard. He had a few classic works in Latin and Greek translated on his own before starting at Harvard, graduated with his first degree there at age 20, a second degree sometime later, became a lawyer, a senator, a professor, a diplomat, the secretary of state, and eventually the president of the United States of America. So this kid from from a very young age, it was just like he was set up, like you just know stuff is going to turn out well for him. Now, there are other people that it seems like everything is stacked against them from the very beginning, right? It it might be somebody whose family history looks more like a a long history of criminal records and prison sentences. Sin and evil might just seem to reign in families from generation to generation, and you look at a kid born into that family in which they've never even heard the gospel, never even heard much about God, and they're born into a family like that, and you wonder... Are they just doomed? Is there any way to break that cycle? Is there any way that that something can change to turn things around for that person? And then we maybe can expand that and even look at, are there ways that God can change entire directions of entire groups of people? So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be introduced to a young man named Josiah, and if he fit into one of those two categories, it's not the John Quincy Adams category, it's the everything stacked against him category, 
right? If you remember, if you were here last week, if you've read Second Chronicles 33, you might remember that if you wanted to find a decent guy in this guy's family history, you'd have to go back like three generations to his great-grandpa who was dead long before he was ever born. Now his dad, his grandpa, Manasseh, was a pretty evil kind of guy. We've been talking about this roller coaster that, that we've kind of gone through beginning in Second Chronicles 29. It began with God doing a great work of restoration under King Hezekiah. We saw a little bit of sin in his life and kind of a, a little downturn towards the end. And then his son Manasseh really kind of instituted this time of a downward spiral of sin and evil in the life of God's people. And his son Ammon kind of just kept that going. And, and we ended kind of last week in this dark pit. And now, young Josiah, remember, here's the situation. Uh, Grandpa Manasseh, remember, he worshipped idols, dabbled in the occult, and practiced child sacrifice. That's Grandpa. And then Dad comes to reign after Grandpa reigns. His dad comes to reign, and Dad is a king at a young age, follows in his dad's evil footsteps. He's only a king for two years before he gets murdered, assassinated in his own home by his own servants. And then the citizens come and they kill the assassins. And then they say, okay, Josiah, it's your turn. And he's eight, right? Like you talk about a guy who doesn't seem set up for success, it would be Josiah. That's his family line, and now he's starting, and he's eight. Like second grade, right? Um, So the question is, is there any hope for God's people? For this guy in particular and for God's people as a whole, They've been on this downward spiral of sin and evil. Is this going to be the one that's going to pop them up out of that? It seems impossible almost. And we're going to ask ourselves this question. As we look at this text from hundreds of years ago, we're going to wrestle with the same questions. Is it possible? Maybe you know your own heart and you're wondering, is it even possible for me to change? There are ways of living, ways of thinking that I have been ingrained in for many years and I don't even know that I can really change. Or you're looking at people around you and saying, I don't know if there's any hope there. I'm not sure that there's going to be real change that can take place. Maybe you're looking at a a relationship, a marriage. Is there there any possibility that change could take place in this marriage, in this parent-child relationship, whatever it is? And so, we're going to look for answers to that question. Can God really change anyone right here in God's Word? We're going to begin in 2 Chronicles 34. That's where we're going to spend really all of our time here this morning. And if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's Word. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Here's God's Word. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy... He began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them, and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars 
and beat the Asherim and the images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, in the eighteenth year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jehoth and Obadiah the Levites, of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. Now, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, All that was committed to your servants, they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord, given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. And then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that's written in this book. So, Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokoth, son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me, and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then 
the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel. And he made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. You can be seated after a long time. (laughs) Thanks for standing. God's Word is good, and it's so good to have it. It is a gift from Him, and that's part of what we're talking about this morning. You do have uh, an outline in your bulletin uh, that might be helpful to help you follow along, maybe take some notes, and then some stuff for application as you go throughout the week as well. And so, you'll see that we have kind of three main points, one kind of fourth one to apply it all at the end. We're looking at The fact that, well, we just read, you just heard it, change is possible. Can God indeed change anyone? And the answer to that question is yes. There is no one whom God cannot change. No matter how bad the situation looks, like the situation looked bad for Josiah, God can make a change, not just in one person, but in a whole group of people. We saw that happen here in 2 Chronicles 34. So the question really then is, how did God do this? How does God take a man in Josiah's situation, a little boy, come to be king with an evil dad and an evil grandpa in a situation that was falling apart, he comes to be leader and turns everything around in his own life and in the life of others? How does that happen? It's a good question. And so we see some things that God does to allow that to happen here in 2 Chronicles 34. The first one is, God gives a conscience. God gives a conscience. Okay. Now, verses 1 and 2 again say that, yes, this, this change can happen. But in verses 3 through 7, we see this about Josiah. Look at verse 3. For in the eighth year of his reign... While he was yet a boy. So if he starts when he's eight, the eighth year of his reign is 15. If you count the first year being the time he was eight, then he's 15 years old at this point. Okay, So he's a 15-year-old kid, king over a country. And it says that he began to seek the God of David, his father. Now, David wasn't his father. It would be like a great, 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 great grandpa. Um, But it refers to him as his father because he's in the line of David, right? And so he starts to seek after God at age 15. Okay, That's the first thing we see him do. And then, we don't know what that looks like for him to seek after God. It doesn't tell us more in the text. All it says is he began to seek after God. And then we read in verses 3 through 7, all of this work that he starts doing. He starts recognizing all these things that his grandpa and his dad and all the people, the stuff that he had grown up with, he started realizing, you know what? All that stuff that I've grown up with, That's wrong. That's sin. I don't want that. Now, it's probably not because his dad did family devotions with him. I highly doubt that that happened. I don't think he sat on grandpa's lap and heard Bible stories when he was a kid, according to what we read about his dad and grandpa. It's not because he spent time in God's Word all the time, because 
it doesn't seem like that's a priority in anybody's life until they find it a little bit later in the chapter. So how is it that this young man all of a sudden begins to recognize sin as sin? I think God has to do it. God does something in this young man, giving him a conscience. I think a gift of God's common grace to all people is a conscience that we from a very young age begin to know the difference between right and wrong. I can tell you as a parent that that happens sometime before age three. Okay? That they know when they're doing something wrong, even when they're tiny little people. Okay? And so Josiah, maybe not having a lot of instruction in the Lord, knows that all of this stuff that everybody's been doing, these idols they've been worshiping, that's not right. And so he doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't celebrate it. He annihilates it. He obliterates it. He goes, did you look at all those words in verses 3 through 7? I think I highlighted them on there. I mean, just look at those words. He purged. He tore down. He cut down. He broke in pieces. He beat into powder. You might remember his grandpa, Manasseh, during a short time of humble repentance, when he realized that these things are sinful, we ought not to worship idols. You remember what he did with them? He didn't destroy them. He put them in storage somewhere, right? He took them out of the city. He's like, these shouldn't be here. So he took them out of Jerusalem but he just put them somewhere else. He put them in storage. And guess what? His son got them out of storage and began. all the people began worshiping him. But Josiah calls sin, sin. Says, I don't care what everybody else has been doing. I don't care what I've been brought up as. I know that this is sin. And so he obliterates those things that were causing sin in the lives of his people. God, again, I think is certainly the one who gives us this kind of conscience. The word conscience doesn't show up in the Old Testament, but the idea is certainly there all over the place. Joseph, remember when his brothers sold him into slavery and and then went and told their dad that he was killed by some wild animals? They knew that that was wrong, right? Josiah knew that what his people were doing were wrong. A couple of application points quick to this before we move on. You may have noticed that it said in verse 3, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek God. A couple of things, just a couple of notes about young people. When we did our community VBS this year, one of the verses that the little, I shouldn't say little, there were sixth graders all the way on down to little kids in VBS. One of the verses they memorized was 1 Timothy 4.12. I don't know how many of them maybe still have that in their head. A lot of the kids are gone today, so um, so, so I'm not going to call on anybody to try and do it. But 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This was Paul writing to Timothy. But this idea that, that we love our church, I think can be, can be characterized as a church that love, loves kids and youth. We have a lot of new ones, especially a part of it. We commit a lot of our church's resources to, to reaching kids all throughout the community through Awana and through our youth groups and those kinds of things. We love kids, but it's not just because kids need us. We realize that we need kids. There's a lot that we can learn from spending time. And if you have spent time with kids as a parent, as a grandparent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a, as a, a volunteer in Awana or a teacher in Sunday school, whatever it is, you spend time around kids, you realize that we need kids probably just as much as kids need us. We can learn so much from them. So that's why Paul calls Timothy, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. 
We have uh, so many opportunities, by the way, coming up this fall. If you're looking for opportunities to, to do ministry, uh, Awana takes a lot of, of volunteers. We'll be talking to people soon about volunteering in Awana. We looks like we're going to have enough volunteers to add the Cubbies program again this year, which we've been, we had to cut out last year because of lack of volunteers. And so really looking forward to that. High school youth group. Uh, it is just a great time for our high school students to get together, eat a meal together, and, and be in God's Word together. God works in these things. Sunday school uh, going to kick off again now in September. Middle school youth group, by the way, middle school youth group, we're planning uh, some changes with that as a way to try and connect with the majority of our students, but also um, trying to reach out to a lot more, trying to think of how can we reach more middle school students. Um, probably going to change our middle school youth, almost certainly going to change our middle school youth group time from being on a Sunday night to being Wednesday after school when kids get out a little bit early and there's that time uh, that we can just uh, hopefully connect and serve a lot of families by connecting with a lot of kids during that time. So anyway, some stuff coming up. Young people specifically. So if you're young, like, I don't know, what do you consider young? Everybody's got a different idea. Some people are like, yeah, anything below 65 is young. I'm talking like really, really young then. I'm talking like, I'm talking like high school, middle school, elementary school, and maybe even some preschoolers. Here's a note to you guys. Notice that what Josiah did when he was still just a boy, it says. When he was yet a boy, he began to seek God. Right? You don't have to wait till you're an adult to seek after knowing God and having a relationship with Him. That's something you can do when you're a young boy or a young girl. That's something Josiah was doing at age 15. And this is probably in the midst of a culture that was a lot more of a mess than our culture is. So I know a lot of the people, you're going back to school soon, right? And a lot of the people at school maybe are not worshiping God as we worship God. They don't believe They don't believe. Uh, in the same things that, that maybe you believe in. But even in the midst of that, young Josiah was a man who was seeking after God. We ought to be young people who seek after God. And then also Josiah was a person who was willing to call sin, sin. We live in a culture, and you kids are going to be going back to a school in which we're taught to tolerate sin, to take sin lightly, or to even not even call sin, sin at all. You can kind of just do whatever you want. As long as it works for you and doesn't hurt too many other people, then it's fine. That's the attitude of our culture. But for us, as even young people, to go into a culture like that and be willing to call sin, sin. Not to be some mean, arrogant, prideful um, legalist, but to, but to acknowledge sin is sin and not to celebrate it. Not to, not to just kind of take it lightly, but to say... That's not what I believe is true because that's not what God says is true. That's what Josiah was willing to do. I'm sure people were upset when all these beautiful things that they had gone to worship at were obliterated. He, he d- put them into powder and sprinkled them on graves. I mean, they probably put a lot of money into those things. He went and destroyed them. You need to be willing to call sin, sin. All right. So God gives Josiah a conscience that allowed him to call sin, sin and deal with it, but He needed something else, and so God gives him something else. I think something that God gives to all of us. Verses 8 to 13, that is that God gives us all a desire to worship. God gives us all a desire to worship. That's the way that we're wired. We were created to worship something other than ourselves. We were created specifically to worship Him. And so you see that here in verses 8 to 13 as 
again, not maybe knowing a lot of, of what he's supposed to do. He knows that that's sin, but he doesn't know exactly what to do because he doesn't have God's word always before him telling him what to do. But he knows that God's people go to worship God at God's place, which in the Old Testament is the temple, right? So he's like, well, this temple's been ignored for two generations now. People don't care about worshiping God, so the temple's falling apart. So he says, we need to restore this again. So he goes, sets about a work of restoration in the temple. And so all this restoring work takes place. A lot of people have to get involved. It requires the generosity and skill of a lot of people. People are willing to do whatever it takes. It says in verse 12 that people are, see verse 12, and the men did the work faithfully. There were some faithful workers. They knew this is what needed to be done. This is what the leader said, and so they were going to do it. They did the work faithfully. And they were willing to do whatever it took. You might have noticed in verses 12 and 13, it looks like kind of the most easy reading of verses 12 and 13 is that the musicians, the Levites, who were skilled musicians, the worship team, they became construction foremen. That's what it looks like is happening in verses 12 and 13. You've got these people who were skilled at music, but instead of, oh, that's small, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um. So they were skilled in playing musical instruments, but they had charge of the laborers and supervised all the workers from job to job. They become the foreman even though their job before was to play music. So uh, everybody's doing whatever it takes to get things done. I'm so grateful that this is the kind of church that we're a part of. That anytime I read a passage like this where you see all of a sudden God's people coming together saying, this needs to get done, let's do it right? You, you need some money to do this? Let's do that. Every time we've done any kind of short-term mission stuff, anytime we come up with a budget, God has always provided for this church through the generosity of his people. And it's so good to be a part of a body like that. You maybe noticed the, uh, the announcement or uh, whatever you call it, announcement, I guess, in the bulletin about a special congregational meeting. Encourage you to come and check that out. That'll be a week from today. We'll just do it right after the worship service. Very short I think very short, depending on how much discussion we have. Um, but, but a couple of opportunities coming up. Our desire, our ultimate goal is as a church that we might know Christ and make Him known. And there's so many different ways that we can do that. So many opportunities. And, and because of your generosity, we have, we have some opportunity to do some things that need to be done that haven't been done. Uh, one locally and one globally. One of the things that we're going to do to try and make, uh, or we, we're going to propose next week, um, is, is the idea of trying to create a more of a welcoming space here by, by redoing some of the stuff out front to kind of uh, repair some of the stuff in the entryway that needs to be repaired and then, and then clean stuff up a little bit and add some new things there. So that's one of the things on the, on the agenda. And the other thing is looking at a, a missions partner that we have, Mary Beth. Uh, was a teacher, uh, she was single at the time, was a teacher, young teacher here in Iowa Falls, was a part of our church, felt called to missions, and so she has been serving a number of years now with her husband, Bio, in Nigeria, West Africa. Okay, so, so that's where she's at. They're doing this great holistic ministry in the name of Jesus, doing a number of different things. That quilt there is from the the part of the ministry that they're doing there, uh, working with some women, kind of giving them some business experience and that kind of thing. Another thing they're trying to do is give an opportunity of education to some kids 
who wouldn't have an opportunity for a good education otherwise. They need a school building for that. And so um, one of the other things we're proposing is that out of some of the surplus that we have, that we give a, a sum of money to them uh, for the purpose of getting that school together. They're very close on being able to maybe secure a property on that. So just a couple of ways in which, again, I have no doubt that our church, because we have and, and I think we'll continue to, step up to say, hey, here are some opportunities for us to to connect with other people, to reach to other people, so that ultimately people might know Christ, and we want to make Him known. And this is how a couple of ways that we can do that. But back to the account in Second Chronicles 34. God has given Josiah and his people a conscience and a desire to worship. I think God gives us those things as well, but that's still not enough. That they still don't really know all that much about who God is and about how they ought to worship Him. Right? He's got this general idea that sin is sin and God deserves to be worshipped. But as far as any sort of specifics, he just doesn't know all that much. And that's why God gives us his word. So that's what we see happen in verses 14 to 31. Or 14 to 33, I guess it is. That we see God's word restored to his people. Look at verses 14 and 15. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found, imagine this, he found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Incredible. So they're just going, kind of cleaning out the temple, and they're like, hey, what's this? And, and more than likely, most people agree that I mean, they didn't have, you know, like a book like we have. They had things on scrolls. More than likely, this was probably from, from everything that, that you could study and kind of check out. This was probably a, a portion or the whole of the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? So, so they just didn't have God's Word accessible to them like we do today. And here they were without it. Two, two possibilities. One is that it had been hidden somewhere because of the the military invasions that were happening all around them. They were scared and they wanted to protect God's word, so they hid it somewhere and then forgot about it. Or maybe somebody put it away and because people weren't really concerned about worshiping God during the previous two generations, they just ignored it. It just didn't matter to them that they had God's word because they didn't care. Okay, But they take it out and in verse 18, they do the best thing you can do with God's word. Verse 18 says, then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it before the king. That's a good thing to do uh, with God's word. That's what they chose to do. Like, hey, we've got this book. We're not going to put it in a case. We're not going to set it on the coffee table. We're not going to hang it on a shelf. We're not going to put it in a frame. We are going to read this thing. And so that's what he does. He comes and he reads the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, for the king. And the king hears it. And God's Word does something. You know when you really hear God's Word? Not just hear it, but really hear God's Word? God's Word does something to you, and that's what happens to Josiah. Verses 19 to 21, we see God bring conviction through His words. Verse 19 said, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He's concerned. Look at verse 21. Go, inquire of the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all that is written in this book. He hears the word. He hears the word of God read to him. He gets an understanding of who God is and what it is that God expects of his people. 
and he is convicted. He tears his robes because he knows we have, we have fallen so far short. You think I'm doing good by destroying idols? We haven't learned the first thing about what it means to worship God. And so he's concerned about all the people. He's thinking of all the people that he's been charged to lead for generations have been worshiping false gods and ignoring the true God. And it hurts his heart. And so he says, look, we've got to do something about this. God's Word. God brings conviction through God's Word. And God brings warnings through God's Word. That's what comes in verses 22 through 28. We see warnings coming through a prophetess named Huldah. In verse 25, she says this, Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. She's sharing with them the word of the Lord, and that's what the Lord says. Hey, these people, I have not, I have not, not noticed what they're doing. Their sin is ever before God. God knows what they're doing and he, he is angry about it. He is not okay with their sin. God is holy and He is not ever okay with sin. And so He is, stands ready to pour out His wrath and Josiah is going to be spared. The Word says in verses 27 to 28, again, God will temporary, temporarily withhold His judgment but they are certainly deserving of it. I'm so glad that, that uh, Josiah responded in the way he did. Remember um, when we read in 2 Kings, um, Hezekiah's response? When, there, when, when the word to Hezekiah was, hey, it's going to be fine for you, but your kids are going to suffer. He's like, hey, as long as it's good for me. Like, What kind of dad was that? Remember that? That was, that was Hezekiah. That's not the response of Josiah. The response of Josiah is not, hey, why don't you bury that book again because it's telling me to change and I don't ever want to change. Somebody wrote that in my high school yearbook. They said, don't ever change, so I don't ever want to change. That's not his answer. His answer is, listen, we've got a lot to learn. We've got some changes to make. Why don't you get the people together? And so that's what happens in the final four verses. Verses 29 to 33. He says, it says here in verse 29, Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. He knew that's what the people needed. These people who had been living in sin for so long, they needed God's word. And so he stands before them. He calls them all together and he says, listen, first he personally repented and responded to God's word, hearing the conviction that was needed. And then he said, listen, we're all a mess. We need so much help. We don't know the first thing about this God that we need to worship. We don't know the first thing about how to worship him. We don't know. And so he just lays it out, reads God's word to them. And guess what? God's Spirit is at work through God's Word to build up His people. And so you get to the end through the gifts of a conscience, through the gifts of a desire to worship, and then ultimately through the gift of His Word. God is at work through His people. And they change. Verse 33, the concluding verse, says this, And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. 
to that roller coaster ride that we were on, you know, last week we see Hezekiah and then we see the downward spiral, Manasseh and Ammon, and then we see Josiah and we're thinking there's no hope, there's no way this eight-year-old's going to turn things around. But here we go. God at work through giving us a conscience, through giving him a desire to worship and through giving him his word, he changes not just this one man, but a whole group of people. Pretty incredible. And so question for us to conclude with is this. Does God still do this today? Does God still change people today? The God who changed a person and a group of people back then, can he still do that today? Can he do that to us? Can he do that to people in our family? Can he do that in our workplaces? Can he do this in our schools? Can he do this in our city? Can he do this in our nation? Yes, he can. The answer to all those questions is God is certainly able. And how will God go about doing that? How does God bring about change? I don't think it's all that different. God doesn't change. His methods don't even change that much. We do know a bit more now on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus and on this side of of having the completeness of God's word accessible to us. We do understand better how it is that God brings about change. And it is in very much the same way that he did with Josiah that God gives us a conscience, that we know the difference between right and wrong. You can read about that in Romans chapter 2. Romans 1 has a lot uh, that you could look at as well. But what we respond, the way that we respond to this conscience that we have, that we know that something's either right or wrong, the way that we often respond, we have a couple of choices. One, when, when you know that, that thing in your head's like, hey, you know what, you know this isn't right. Right? That's your conscience. Uh, you know this isn't right. You can respond by hardening yourself to any conviction that God might bring. Say, well, sin isn't really sin. Whatever you want to do to kind of make yourself feel better about it. And you know what? If you do that, you're going to have a lot of people supporting you. You're not going to have a problem having people supporting you in that decision. To harden yourself against any conviction and not call sin, sin. A lot of people will support you in that. But we could also respond in a different way by agreeing with God about sin and saying, you know what, God, you're right. This sin that seems so attractive in some ways to me, I know it's wrong. I know it's offensive to you. I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Something wrong. Another thing that God gives us is a desire to worship. Another gift of His common grace toward us is a desire to worship. It is. We're still wired to worship, and we can choose. There's, there's no shortage of things that you might worship. You might worship your spouse. You might worship somebody of the opposite sex. You might worship success. You might worship money. You might worship your family. You might worship your kids. You might worship all sorts of other things. Or you can recognize like Josiah that, you know what, the only one truly worthy of worship is God. I need to know him more that I might worship him more. That's where Josiah got in his life. That's where he led the people. But again, just like those two things weren't enough for Josiah, those two things alone aren't good enough for us. Just having a conscience and a desire to worship is not enough. We need God to be at work through his spirit, through his word, as we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how God changes people. You know that, right? That that's how God changes people. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have more access to this than anybody else in history. So what are we going to do with it? We can again respond by hardening ourselves, ignoring it, twisting it, distorting it, whatever. Or we can allow the Spirit to soften our hearts. That as we hear the gospel, 
We can ask that the Holy Spirit, even as we proclaim the gospel to other people, we can ask the Holy Spirit to be at work, causing them to be born again, that they might have new hearts and new eyes, new ears, to hear things that maybe, maybe they've heard over and over again, but they don't have ears to really hear it. But We can ask the Holy Spirit to come and to soften hearts that people might be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. And then there was this commitment that we saw in Josiah that we have as well, that I want to change. Once I hear of what Jesus has accomplished for me, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, that he rose again, and I have freedom from sin as I trust in him. That's the only way I have freedom, trusting in him. And as I do that, I start to see that I want to live differently. I want him to take over, to be king of my life and Lord, master. And God continues to give. He gives us his spirit. He gives us His Spirit to convict us of sin. He gives us His Spirit to help us understand God's Word. I put a ton of Scripture up there. I'm not going to go through it. This is stuff if you want to write it down and go over it on your own. You're welcome to do that. But as God's Spirit works through God's Word, we start to recognize what we deserve. We put our faith in Jesus. That's called being born again. That's the work of the Spirit. We continually submit ourselves to Jesus as the true King. We realize that if it wasn't for God's Spirit, if it wasn't for God's Word, we still wouldn't have a clue. We still wouldn't know how to obey. We don't have the power to obey, so we ask the Spirit to help us. God, help us to obey. We know that this is true, but there's so much in us that seems to head in the other direction. Would you convict us over and over again, helping us to know and be convinced that this is true, and help me to obey. I don't have the power in myself to be obedient to your commands. Help me by your Spirit. That's how God changed Josiah and the people under his reign. And that's how God changes us. Truth is, we can change. God can change anyone. God can change not just an individual, but whole groups of people. And we will pray to that end. But we do know the truth is, you can't change yourself. I don't care how stubborn you are. I don't care how many good examples. I don't care if you're John Quincy Adams and you had everything kind of just handed to you. You still don't have the power to change yourself. The only one who has the power to do that is God. And he will be at work through his spirit, working through his word, building up his church, and changing and transforming us from the inside out. We're so grateful for that. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together.